You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Dancing Man, a fabulous invalid podcast featuring exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with the cast and creative team of Bob Fosse's Dancing on Broadway. I'm Rob Russo. I'm Jamie Dumont. And we're your hosts. We're also excited to be co-producers of Dancing on Broadway and thrilled to be back in the Roosevelt Cocktail Room at Civilian for another wonderful conversation. Yes, and this week we are speaking with David Dabin, who did the dance arrangements for the show and has also written some new music for the show. Of course, in a dance show, the music is really crucial, and it's a very important part of the experience. So we wanted to talk to someone who was hands-on in creating it. It's such an interesting job that I think a lot of people don't really understand what it is or how they do it, and we're going to find out. Yeah, yeah. And especially in the world of Fosse, right? Mm -hmm. Where the music is not an afterthought, right? The music is an essential component of the whole experience. There's even like a Fosse sound. I can't quite articulate it, but it exists. Well, when you think of the Fosse sound, I immediately go to Ralph Burns. Yeah. You can't not, I think. Yeah. Who was his longtime orchestrator. And uh, the two clearly had a real simpatico in terms of uh, the style and the instrumentation and all of that. And that is reflected in this new version on stage. And it's so much more than that, which mm-hmm. is what we're going to find out from David. So I'm yeah. very excited to talk to him. Great. Let's get to it. Let's. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so thrilled to have you. And we're really excited to dive into the music of Danson. You've, of course, written some new music for this production, which we will get to in a minute. But before we get there, you're also the dance arranger for the show. So I'm wondering if you could explain for our listeners right off the top, what is it that a dance arranger does? It is one of the hardest questions to describe, I think, for me, because as somebody who grew up listening to so much musical theater, you never really understand how it gets created. Uh, I started off as a dancer. I would listen to these musicals, specifically Crazy For You is the one that comes to mind. Uh, you'd hear these big dance breaks and I was so enamored by them. And I, I never understood that, that somebody would be the person to actually create the dance music for these musical numbers. You have the composer, you have the choreographer, you have the director, you have the cast, you have the orchestra, the orchestrator, and then you have a dance arranger. And so what the dance ranger does is take 
the work of the composer and then figures out how to take this two minute song and make it a seven minute dance number. And it could be three minutes, it could be whatever number. <laughs> but um, so the example that I think is easiest to say is something like uh, Happy Birthday, which we all know the song to. If we were putting it in uh, a cartoon, for example, in a hotel uh, and you sing a whole song and they're singing it to a little kid and then all of a sudden, you know, you see some guests slide down the banister. What's the music that goes down that? And so that's my job is to figure out how to get the music and the story and still keeping it in the same world, but working with the, with the choreographer and the director and all the other elements that you can play with to musically enhance the work that's getting on stage. I've had the same revelation regarding overtures. I always said, oh, well, of course, the composer writes the overture, but not true, right? Or not always true. Some do, right? Some historically have, right? Does a dance arranger for a show like this where there's no one composer, right? There's a bunch of different songs that were put together. How do you sort of negotiate that? Not having like a living person to be working with, but here it's more like a team of people who are putting together, a, in a way, a new score, but, you know, one that is using existing material from different composers. What... Fosse's work has done so beautifully is really uh, not just do what what his work does, but also celebrate sort of what the music and musicality of that piece does. You know, mm. there's um, each each sort of vignette has its own world of choreography, and when you're looking at how music inspires dance or dance inspires music, you're really figuring out what feels right for that moment. Wayne Salento, our director, would always say. It's tricky about Fosse's work is his musicality is exceptional. So how music fits to his choreography, you're sort of st stuck with those rhythms. You're stuck with the, the musical phrasing. When you're looking at any composer's work to, to dance arrange, you're also looking at their musicality. What is the... the um, where are things sort of undulating and where are things dipping, where are things hitting or popping, uh, where are the pauses? I think understanding both the emotional layer, the musical layer is a really big part of keeping the integrity of the composer's work. And I think being uh, of understanding those tools that we are given as artists, that's sort of how uh, was sort of my approach. Uh, as well as Jim Abbott, who's our music supervisor, orchestrator, and uh, also arranger on the show. Um, I think how we approach the, the work is both what feels right for that moment to be genuine and also support the musicality of Fosse's work. So it's all there in the in the music that you've been given. So like, not, not having a living person to talk to isn't necessarily essential because it's it's in the music. Right. And unfortunately, I, I didn't get to see the show, you know, and there's certain, the original show. Meeting, right. Uh, but there are certain things that we've incorporated in Bob Fosse's dance and uh, in this revival that we have resources of video mm -hmm. and uh, and other elements that we've gotten to do. For example, there's uh, a sequence from um, My Sister Eileen, uh, and that music was written by the amazing Julie Stein. And so in our sequence, it didn't quite work to use that music. And we wanted to come up with something that felt a little more contemporary and supported what their action of their storytelling was. So taking, understanding what that music was uh, for that for that film and then getting to create something totally different but celebrating what the work had been done before so that we're celebrating all those things that, that has been created before that. Sounds a bit like a puzzle. 
<laughs> so it's a little bit like taking puzzle pieces and putting them together and like puzzles, puzzle pieces from different puzzles and <laughs> figuring out how they fit and then finding those fits and making it work from there. Absolutely. I think part of that is you want to come up with something new, right? And so you're trying to to create a new world of different things. And when you're putting together a puzzle, you um, you're also drawing the picture of the puzzle at the same time. So you're drawing and breaking it at the same time. And you're you're doing this fractal-like thing that the more you look into something, the more that you spot and the more that you sort of see the patterns of it. Well, there seems to be a recurring theme in, in a lot of the interviews I've read with different creatives in this project about the desire to channel what Bob would have done and what he did do, right? Which is to... You know, he he kind of never took a piece of music and just set choreography to it. Famously, if you've seen the sequence, you know, the take off with us and all that jazz, right? He would take the tune and then he'd play with it. He'd warp it. He'd, you know, he'd add rhythm sections. He'd, you know, add some pauses, whatever. Um, and it seems like that's what you guys are doing or what you've done in certain portions of the show where you've done the reverse. You've, you have the choreography. Now you need to fit the music to it, which is sort of how he worked. Uh, so I'm wondering if that is part of what, keeps it vital and fresh for today. I think it absolutely is a key element of, of, of this is what, what will make this fresh. I think yeah. as, as you just said, is like asking that question and it's through being genuine through the moments that you spot, the things that stick out, the things that you want to enhance. And I think those are, those are elements in terms of taste and approach that then help highlight the things that you want people to see. I think audiences are always in tune when something feels authentic and genuine and are clearly aware when there's manipulation. And music has this gift of being able to make people feel things, even if something's not happening. And always, you know, as you keep hearing throughout life, going back to the simplest version is always the right thing. But you don't find those simple versions until you've explored things, because then you end up still finding those unique textures or things that are surprising. And then it just sort of oozes out that way. <laughs> well, you mentioned something at the top that I want to circle back to in passing, which is that you have a background in dance. And I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about what that background is and how that has been so, I imagine, instrumental in your work as a dance arranger. Great word using instrumental. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I grew up just outside of Boston. And for whatever reason, I just wanted to dance. I was putting on shows in my basement and uh, I would go to theater camps and, and I would always take the dance classes. And I actually didn't take dance officially until seventh grade. And then I went to a summer camp, uh, well-known theater camp called Frenchwoods. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a dance instructor there who saw me dance and he would always take the most, uh, you know, the best dancers that he could find for this intense jazz level. And I had never really taken dance and he put me in the class and it was so over my head, but it was the best training. I learned what the discipline of dance was. I learned that there's a, a technique. Uh, I learned about um, being in my body, how to perform, what music and movement do together. And th these were things that I sort of had instincts for, but I didn't really understand until somebody was like, these are, these are the, the things to look out for. And so then as I got older, my mom was like, okay, you, you're, you 
want to take dance seriously. So I started taking with the Boston Ballet and I was training three days a week, two days a week with, so excuse me, four days a week, two, uh, two days a week with people that were my age in high school and then two days a week with nine, 10 year olds because they wanted to put me in an accelerated program where I would learn the technique because I didn't have any. Um, I was a very fast learner, but I just didn't have the years of training that other people had. So it was, it was sort of bizarre, this high school kid being with these nine, 10 year olds taking <laughs> ballet. And um, I remember like driving my car and, you know, and all these kids were getting dropped off by their parents. And it was just, <laughs> I felt so both awkward and also like, I'm so blessed to have this training. And I did that for a while. And then I went off to college and while I was in college, I, so I was a self-taught pianist at the same time and I was composing a lot and I was very curious about orchestration and arranging. And so I signed up for an orchestration class my freshman year. And my theory was quite good because how I taught myself to play piano was I was, I would get Broadway fake books and a Broadway fake book is, is just the melody with chords. So there's no piano accompaniment. So uh, that's how I taught myself. I would hear these songs that I knew, but I didn't know what the piano part was. So I sort of figured all of that out. So my theory was quite good. So I signed up for this orchestration class and our first assignment was to take a Haydn, eight measures of a piano piece uh, that Haydn had composed and orchestrate it four different ways for a string quartet. Mm. And our teacher, you know, we did it, we sent it to our teacher and he made Xerox copies of everything and passed it out. And it comes to my turn. He says, class, this is what not to do for orchestration. And it was a great lesson. He said, this is, he did, he did compliment my work. He said, this is great work, but this is an arranger's work. This is not an orchestration work. What I had done was I had taken Haydn's melody and I had played with the texture. I had played with the, the, <laughs> the, the, the accompaniment. I had made one, you know, very fast, one slow. I had, I had just, I played. It's what music is. I wanted to play with it. And I didn't do an orchestration. And what orchestration was, was taking the part that was there and putting it onto the instrument, still keeping the, the arrangement that the composer had done, not changing it to, you know, the, the maybe not so great version, be like, oh, a tango, a waltz, a foxtrot version. That was a great lesson for me of like, okay, this is what an arranger does. And slowly through other things like that, I just gravitated to arranging. It sort of clicked. My mom had always said as a kid, David, I know that you want to perform. You want to I actually wanted to choreograph and direct. And she said, I know that those are things that you want to do. I think you should go into music. Um, and I fought it, fought it. And all of a sudden it was this moment of like, everything sort of clicked. And I, and it's interesting just thinking about the work that I'm doing now, I was set up for all these things, the music, the arranging, you know, the, all, all these sort of layers. And I think as a, as coming from dance in that world of how things feel when you kick or turn or cross the stage or jump, or, you know, the concept of building the sense of when to even break out into dance after you've sung. Those are things that I sort of just felt emotionally first that I think have helped me as create the way that I'd like to create. And especially with Fosse, where the moves are so specific and so keyed to the music, you know, because that's how he, he worked. I mean, you've already, you already talked about that. I imagine being able to not only understand in your body and emotionally, but also have the language to describe what's going on. I imagine that's very helpful 
in the process. I think understanding the language is very key because people also refer to things very differently. Even even referring to music, sometimes people say, oh, I, I don't want the music to be high. But what they really mean is I, I don't want it to be loud mm. or that should be faster. But what they really mean is just take out the pauses. They don't mean changing the tempo. And with dance, you're having a lot of terms that are very straightforward. And same with music. You're, you've, you understand that terminology. And it's that cross-pollination of the dance world and, and the music world that sometimes those words mean very different things or the way somebody feels something might be very different. So a lot of it is, uh, is, is the communication and understanding what is trying to be communicated, not even just the literal sense. And when you're trying to bring out the music of somebody doing a kick or a leap, you know, those are those terms of, you know, when this person's doing a pirouette or a batma, you know, you're, you're watching these things and you're like, okay, I know how to reference that. So that in that aspect, being able to reference choreography makes it really easy. But what is the hardest part is the communication of, hey, this this isn't working uh, because it it's it's you know, it's too busy. And you're like, what does busy mean? Is it tempo? Is it, is it that the notes are too low? Um, so it's always about the translation of what things and what people are responding to. Well, let's take Danson in, in particular, because Danson was done in San Diego. They did a six week run, I think it was, and then a little bit of time and then came into New York, right? And obviously it's in previous now and, and running. How much of your arrangements have changed from San Diego to New York? And then once you're in New York, from rehearsals to what we're seeing on stage, the Music Box Theater. From San Diego to here, there was there were a lot of first small changes, right? There's a lot of like, hey, I want I want to take these ideas I have and make them better. And then there's other things where like, hey, we tried this out in San Diego, these bigger sequences. Uh, we had this concept for a sequence um, in America where we had tried things in San Diego where where we were playing. It was it was our playground to try and create new ideas and take those risks. And some of them worked, some of them didn't. And when we reevaluated how what what we wanted to change, uh, that that process really took a step of what are the things that don't feel right? What are the things that we want to that we want people to feel? Um, and so that there are times where it comes with group brainstorming where you're saying, hey, I've got this idea. And somebody says, oh my gosh, let me add this. Or, you know, for example, uh, there's a sequence where uh, you're hearing a lot of baseball terminology mm. being referenced. And it's this am amazing sequence that Peter's dancing to. And that came from a conversation of what feels American. We were talking about, you know, football, American football. And then somebody else said, what about baseball? And, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, what if we take these these terms and figure out how to do it. And it's so thrilling. You're watching him turn and you're hearing, you know, the crowd in the stadium cheer and it feels so American. And it's also such a bizarre idea, but the irony of these, these baseball terms with this choreography, it clicks. And I think that's what you're always looking for in these instances of creating is when does it click? With this project specifically, um, what's fascinating is there's the world of Bob Fosse, there's the choreography of Bob Fosse, which is when you say Bob Fosse, most people probably think of, it's the moves, right? But then there's also these other layers, one of which is the music. And the sort of sonic world of Bob Fosse was a very consistent 
thematic, you know, world that existed, probably in part because Ralph Burns, his longtime orchestrator, did everything with him post-1962 with Little Me. And I imagine that really informed, that collaboration informed a lot of what things sounded like. As you stepped into this project, what was your sense, how would you describe the sound of Fosse as distinct from the style of movement? That's a really interesting question because I think part of both what we were challenging and also wanting to do is what is it that defines that musicality? What, what is it that defines that musical world? Is it the coolness? Is it the space? Is it repetition? And I think there are things where you're, hey, this is something that they did in, let's say, in Chicago or in Pippin, that you, you're like, oh, these are, these are the worlds that they had created for those specific shows that became the identity of maybe the, the Fosse musical sound as well as the sound of those writers. And then what might be the complete contrast to that so that you can find where where that musicality is. There are things that we've done that strangely feel very, if Fosse were alive today to create, I don't know what he would do. I, I, I None of us really do, but we do know when things click. And I think, uh, the, I think the, the pattern that I maybe might've found is the importance of rhythm, which of course is this, one of the centers of dance and especially Fosse's work. You watch his work and you're seeing these incredible rhythms. There's a line that um, Eo says early in the show about uh, dancers are instruments. And that is so true in the show, is how Fosse's uses the body and the rhythms of, not percussive rhythms, even though we do have a percussion section, <laughs> uh, but the rhythms of how the movement is laid out. And... You know, when uh, there's the alley dance, the one for my sister Eileen, um, that we put to some a mix of some new things along with on Broadway, which for a little uh, Easter egg yeah. uh, for uh, those Fosse fans is in all that jazz. And you're seeing these people on the streets of New York dancing to to that. And, you know, little things like when they catch the hat or there's this step that they do where it's like... Um, it's it, every time I watch it, I bop my head up and down, and the, the music just rocks out for two bars. It goes into like a, a big funk, and it and it matches the choreography, the the groove and the, the jive. Also, the pop of all those things is is I think what makes that Fosse world the Fosse world. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
you mentioned Easter eggs, <laughs> and there's a giant basket of Easter eggs on stage at the Music Box Theater every night called Big City Mime, which you wrote the music for or, or contributed quite a bit to it. So I'm, I'm curious because for those of you that haven't seen the show, and I don't want to give too much away, it is a, it is a, a giant number that is referencing what you're talking about, filled with Easter eggs, filled with moments that are iconically Fosse, that have all been slightly redone and slightly reinterpreted. And and they give you what you know, and then they give you something different. And musically, you had a lot to do with that. So I'm curious, how did that, what was that process like? And how did you get from nowhere, because it didn't exist, <laughs> to where it is now, which is just one of the most thrilling moments in the show? Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm very proud of it too, and it still feels crazy to say that I've gotten to 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 create and and be part of this, and it just it still blows my mind. So, just a little backstory about the the sequence, Big City Mime, which was a sequence that was out of town in the original Danson. I I don't quote me on this, but I believe it was only in for one performance. And when Wayne, our director, wanted to create this at our first meeting he really said this is important to me i want to make sure that we do this sequence bob loved the ballet form and so wayne was like let's do the ballet let's do it i know that there's a lot of iconic fossey work that people will want to see and that we'll want to share and how do we do it through a new lens and telling the story that bob had created for big city mime uh, when I got the script, it had all these sequences and all these truly incredible, iconic moments that they would reference from Sweet Charity to uh, Pippin to uh, Cabaret, uh, Ring Them Bells with Liza, uh, from Liza with Z. And um, and so figuring out how to weave all these things together was, was the biggest question because you've got all these different worlds, these different shows, these different narratives, figuring out what that lens was. And when Wayne started talking to me, he said, I want this to feel cinematic. I want it to feel epic. I want it to, uh, and so I just kept holding on to these words. And when it came time to start to put it together, I was like, we need something to weave this. And so I came up with this theme that you hear throughout and it's quite an intense melody. It's minor, it's percussive, the whole orchestra is playing these rhythms, it's it's bitey, it's edgy, it's got these stabs in it. The moment you hear it, you're like, something intense is going to happen. Even though the, the, the whole adventure of this character, Cyril going through New York City, it's him exploring many aspects of the city, his sexuality, his intrigue with people, his ability to connect with with other individuals around the city. And I think that that's what I wanted to capture musically with that theme was like the sense of intensity that you, this build up until, so that anytime we went into a new world, we could just release. So figuring out that melody was quite important. And so I wrote something and, and I was like, okay, this is just going to be my first draft. And Wayne loved it. And then the other parts were, you know, getting these, these very famous sections that, you know, people love and think of when they hear Fosse's work, the the Frug and Sweet Charity, for example. The riff is very famous. And so 
I was like, what do we do to to bring that out? But we make it a little different, a little darker, a little oozier. So there are a lot of things in that sequence musically that we've done is when things go typically go down, we went up. Or when things would take bigger steps, we'd make them smaller. All those sort of things were both, as you mentioned, the the Easter eggs. So for another little Easter egg is uh, there's a sequence where he's going into uh, a bookstore and meets this this woman that he has this romantic flirtatious encounter with. <laughs> um, but the music going into it is this is the sequence in all that jazz, the Vivaldi, mm -hmm. um, all that the, that string uh, music. And the idea on that was, you know, you would almost hear that through the speakers walking in through a bookstore. Um, and nobody might really know that unless you are a, you know, a huge fan of Fosse's work. And so those are little things that were my little winks to uh, to people that, that w will also geek out over that thing, things and, like that. And what I'm geeking out over is that in that moment, the choreography that Delise is doing is Fistrata from Pippin or, or reminiscent of Fistrata, some moves that she makes. So it's layer on top of layer on top of layer. It's just seamless how it's all come together. I, 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 that was the goal. So I'm so glad that you had that experience too. Well, and I love that you got the theme in one. I mean, you just, you just, <laughs> it just came out. <laughs> sometimes that happens. Yeah, sometimes you know, the I, first, yeah, the first I, impulse is the right one, right? And, but it, t it took a lot of marinating, you know, I, I think it's also taken a lot of years of watching this material. It, it was sort of my research before diving in and, you know, Wayne was sharing all these words that felt, uh, important to me to include, and I think understanding that, and obviously the, once I had written that, I it shaped a lot more, but figuring out what that emotional thing is, once that is, usually things are pretty set. I think it's interesting what you just said is that it had been marinating, right? Because I, I didn't mean to imply or make it sound like it just popped out of you because clearly that's not what's happening. You've, you've explained beautifully how hard your process is and, and how lengthy it is. But it is also something that is living within you, right? Just musically, you're, you've been a musical person your entire life long, right? So this music lives within you. So when you have something to inspire you, then it then it does make that process not easier, but more fluid, I would think. Uh, there's that famous quote. Um, I don't remember the whole quote, but there was a Martha Graham quote about keeping your channel open. Mm. And I think it's exactly that. It's like when, you, when you've been sort of feeding and marinating and, and watching, you know, keeping it open so that things can just pour out and you're not editing, especially when you're trying to create. The, the hardest thing to do is edit while you're creating. And that was really important to me is I, is not to do that on this process. Because I think that that's what I love about his work is that it's so playful. It's so sensual. It's difficult, yet it's simple. And it's, it's not overly edited, yet it's incredibly edited. Mm. And I think it comes from a place of what feels right first and then editing so that you're getting something that feels natural and has a natural flow to it. And then figuring out how to smooth things that might not have, you know, it's like making um, muffins, you know, <laughs> you, you want to try to make the kitchen clean while you're doing it, but some flour might spill out or whatnot, but you know, you're doing it and you're not going to clean up as you go. Otherwise you're not going to get these delicious muffins. You're not going to feel the love in it. 
You need a little mess, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, as you go along. You just mentioned a keyword, which is sensual. And as, as Jamie knows, one of my favorite moments in the entire show is Joint Endeavors uh, in Act Two, uh, which is another piece where you've written some new music. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because as you were talking earlier, the thing that popped into my head was that moment feels so cinematic musically. And I'm wondering if that was part of your, your process going into creating it. Jim Abbott had this great idea of using Let It Ride uh, sort of as our base for those themes. As you listen to it, you'll hear that the melody of that is sort of sprinkled throughout, even though the tone is so different yeah. on these. The, the worlds of, of um, the two women dancing and the two men and then the man and the woman, like you're noticing these these different worlds musically and the, the choreography is pulled from all that jazz. When we, when we started to put it together, the concept was what is the texture that's going to keep the chemistry? Because when you're talking about joint endeavors, you're talking about sexual relationships and sensuality and chemistry. So what is going to bring out our our lens and also the audience to see it through that way. So for the first sequence, it's it feels very classical. It's all acoustic. Then we contrast it to uh, a digital world, um, and Jim and I put that together where it it feels electric and uh, not of the acoustic. So you've got acoustic, you've got digital, and then you've got the third sequence that is a hybrid of both. So you've got this acoustic quality along with these like digital percussive vocal sounds and then this vocal on top of let it ride which is a completely different version than the original and it's so sensual and and carly who's singing it is incredible and it's it's just nice to have different textures and they're all strangely from the same sequence in in the film but we because we put a spotlight on it you're looking at it incredibly different than you would if they were happening at the same time or if they had different pieces. You, If you were to even switch the music on all of them, strangely could almost work, mm. but it clicks with each one that it has. Well, we've been fairly upfront about our favorite moments in yeah. the show. So I, I have to ask, do you have a favorite moment in the show? I love uh, Big Noise. Mm. Uh, it's a trio that happens in the first act um, it's with and it's with Nando, Maddie, and Tony, uh, and it's it, it is the moment it starts. It's 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 got this bass line, boom, 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 and it's sort of comedic. And then you hear a whistle, bum, bum, ba, da, 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 and and you're seeing them sort of like bouncing and bopping about, and you know they're flapping their hands, and there there's a little layer of improv in it. And it feels like you're watching a cartoon reel. I don't know how that's possible, but you, I feel like I'm watching a cartoon. And the moment I'm doing it, I'm also wanting to do the choreography. And, and I, I, it's one. Of, I've worked on a lot of amazing shows, and I, I, I actually never get sick of the shows that I'm usually watching. Um, and this one in particular. I, I can't stop watching any of these numbers in the show. Like all of them are so fantastic, but that is one that I'm like, 
if I were still dancing today, that's one that I would want to do because I love the personalities. I love the I love things with chemistry. That's something that I think the entire show does is you getting to watch these people interact with each other. Something like Sing Sing Sing, which is uh, an outstanding number, the structure of it, and when you're also dealing with one of the greatest pieces of music of all time, then you're having these, this cast dancing, jumping so high, you know, and there are these different sections of the trombone solo and trumpet solo, piano solo, clarinet solo, and it's also very sensual, but they're in these beautiful, beautiful sort of rose-ish colored tones and the chemistry between the cast, and they're doing these movements and they're in, they sort of bond together into these circular clumps and then they spread out and some movements are very slow and then very fast and these poses and jumps and it's just like every sequence is uh, an extra burst. It's like having um, a pomegranate. It's like you're getting the the texture, the beautiful color and then you you put it in your mouth and you get these like bursts of juice and texture and uh, so I think something I love about the show and those sequences, I can keep going. I'm thinking of all the other sequences now that I love in the show because literally I don't think there's one sequence I don't like. But I think the the ones that I, that first come to mind are the ones that really show the chemistry between the people dancing. And you feel invited to that as you're watching. I don't know how that's possible, but you just do. I think that's the amazing thing is you're you're celebrating uh, you're watching these, this cast do such athletic activity in a beautiful, edgy, smooth, bitey, funny, gorgeous way. Mm. I love that you answered that question, not only with your musical brain, but your dancer brain. <laughs> That was that was nicely done. <laughs> well, on Broadway, you've done a nice variety of things, uh, from Beetlejuice, which was a more contemporary score, to Funny Girl, which is you know can't get more golden age than that, right? Dancing is sort of a smorgasbord of everything, right? I imagine each project teaches you something, or you have to learn something new, you know, for all these different styles. What is something that working on dancing has has taught you? It's funny. I, I answered this question for myself the other day, and then I said that's not the right answer because I, I always like reflecting. I think the biggest thing that I've learned from this show is to make a decision, stick with it, and see where it plays. Mm. Because when you are creating, you do have to believe in the work that you are doing. And if you don't, then something's usually not right. And I think that pattern has been very present for me on this process because I think people can usually spot when when on the creative team when things aren't clicking and when things when you can't stand behind an idea they can always sense it and um, I think that's the gift I have as an artist for myself and also the thing that I hate about my artistry is is I, I don't know how to stand behind ideas I don't believe in and the moment I do, you can always tell. Um, that's why I pr probably should never play poker. Or unless anybody else wants to win, <laughs> let's play. Right. But I think it's true. Really standing behind your ideas and believing in them is something that I think, I think that goes for anything in, in, in life, not just, you know, is really understanding what your perspective is and what you want to achieve and, and bringing that and making sure that your idea is being communicated properly. 
because it's very easy to feel something. And especially because I, I, I do feel a lot of things. I just naturally do. Sometimes that, if I can't communicate it well to anybody else, it doesn't serve anything. Mm. So not just under, not just feeling it, but also understanding it so that I can express it in a way that allows. And I think that's something I've really learned on this process is, is, is that tool. Thank you so much. I, it's been such a treat to not only share your enthusiasm for the show and what you do, but also your very unique insight to, um, an aspect of the show that, um, I don't think people look at very often. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. A dancing man, a dancing man, a dancing man with footsteps on the sands. Bob Fosse's Dancing is now on Broadway at the Music Box Theater. For tickets and more information, visit dancingbway.com. Dancing Man, a Fabulous Invalid podcast, is a production of OM, etc., and the Fabulous Invalid LLC, and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to Civilian for hosting us and to our audio engineer, Kyle Moore. If you liked this episode, we've got over 100 episodes of the Fabulous Invalid podcast that you can check out, including a two-parter on the life, work, and legacy of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.